welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas can shape markets, but more importantly, they can change the world. Today, we have Christopher Stitt, from the, uh, who's a supervisory special agent with the Diplomatic Security Service. Those of you who have listened to the great conversation know we have quite a few DSS uh, people on our, um, on our conversation. And they give us some insights that we wouldn't get otherwise. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Christopher today. And also, he's an adjunct faculty at George Mason University. But Christopher, uh, today, we're going to talk about Christopher. We're going to get in the mind of Christopher, not into DSS or George Mason. How's that sound? That sounds great. Yeah. So like I said, uh, when we were talking a minute ago, any comments that I have are not necessarily reflective of the uh, of Domestic Security Department of State or George Mason, but I uh, really look forward to, you know, having this conversation. Absolutely. And I'm going to get to know Christopher a little bit too. Christopher, how did you end up in DSS? Give me a little background. So it's kind of a funny story. When uh, I was a small child, I wanted to go to the FBI and I wanted to be an FBI agent. And that was kind of the track that I was following throughout my entire uh, schooling. Um, However, when I was in college, I chose to live in, at Ohio University, uh, the international dorm, because I was fascinated by the stories my father told of growing up overseas. His father was an oil executive, and my, uh, my father grew up in uh, Nassau in the Bahamas, and also in France, and London, and Boston, and et cetera. Um, so I was fascinated by that lifestyle, so I chose to live in the international hall so that I could experience more international cultures. Um, at OU, I studied uh, sociology and psychology, emphasis in criminology. Um, didn't want to go get a law degree though, which is, you know, as you know, is probably one of the major entryways into the FBI. I figured I'd go into law enforcement, get some experience there, and would uh, simply, um, you know, I would simply, uh, you know, apply to the FBI later when I was old enough and had the experience. So my senior year in college, I thought about taking the foreign service exam and going to the State Department because I was interested in the international culture. But at the same time, I wanted to go into law enforcement. I wanted to be, be in the FBI. So I said to myself, no, I'm not even going to take the foreign service exam. I want to follow this path. So I ended up working for U.S. Capitol Police because to join the FBI, you've got to have a certain age and a certain number of years of experience. So uh, I went to U.S. Capitol Police and I was working there when a friend of mine who was doing background investigations um, had just done an interview uh, with somebody from Diplomatic Security and we were having lunch the next day. And he uh, was telling me about this organization. This was back in 97, 96. Um, this is back in 96. And, uh, you know, I'm listening to him and I said, wait a minute. So I can do investigations like the FBI, protection like the Secret Service, but my jurisdiction is the whole world. Where do I sign up for that? And it just so happened that, you know, back in the 90s, uh, there were very limited opportunities, but it just so happened that they had an open announcement at the time. So I went ahead and made the application. Um, you know, gave him a little bit of my background and through the process, uh, joined Diplomatic Security in, on actually August 17th of 1997. So 23 Happy anniversary. So that's how I got into Diplomatic Security and frankly, never looked back. I, it's funny, I had in New York where I was assigned, 
a couple of roommates who were FBI agents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, so I got to see how they were interacting with the department and how their careers were going. And I'm very, very happy that I uh, ended up with the max security. Give me, um, give me three learning tracks, if you will, that pretty much uh, you have pursued throughout your career. What are the learning tracks that you have dug deep into, become uh, a student of during your career with DSS? Well, I'd say the biggest one is going to be emergency management. Um, I was in uh, Guatemala when I was first introduced to our department's emergency action plan process. And I, um, at the time, thought it was not overly useful how it was being done. So I started to ask around if we could do it other ways. Um, at first, I achieved some resistance to this, um, but I had a very supportive supervisor who managed to, you know, uh, keep pushing to let us go forward with kind of a new format that I had developed. Um, I then expanded on that when I was in uh, Burkina Faso uh, in West Africa. And then as I was coming out of there, um, I was asked to go ahead and take over the office that runs emergency planning in Dipmac Security. And, you know, there's some history to uh, that office, but basically I was going to be the first agent assigned to that office in, uh, for more than 10 years. Um, and when I asked them, okay, great, I'm here. What would you like me to do? What do you want it to look like? They said, you're the one with the ideas. You figure it out. So at that point, I realized, okay, I've got to really not just have some ideas, but I've got to learn some background. Um, so I worked with uh, the International Association of Emergency Managers. I worked with the, um, uh, with the City of New York Office of Emergency Management. Um, I worked with, I took classes from uh, FEMA through their, um, uh, through their Emergency Management Institute, uh, some of the online classes. And I really tried to learn kind of what is going on with emergency management. Also, this was now right after 9-11. So there were a lot of changes going on in emergency management. Um, very terrorism focused. State has often been terrorism focused because of our embassies overseas. Um, but there was a lot of development throughout um, 2002 forward on how emergency management was going to be done. And, you know, you had the National Incident Management System that came out. You had um, what is now the um, uh, Emergency Management Framework, um, you know, different things like that. So I was learning about all these things and trying to match state systems with those. Um, another area, I think, that uh, just, you know, being in diplomatic security investigations is something that I have worked you know, to do and understand. Basically, every special agent in DIPMAC security is a criminal investigator certified by the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. And typically, your first tour in DIPMAC security is going to be to a field office where you're focused on uh, visa and passport fraud investigations, uh, focused on dignitary protection operations. Visa and passport fraud investigations often lead to investigations into many other areas. So now fast forward 20 years, I'm actually back in a field office for the first time in my career, 
So I started in New York in 97 and now I'm back here in, or I started in New York in 98 and now I'm back here in 2020. An interesting experience to me to see how much we as an organization have developed when it comes to investigations, frankly, how far we still need to go uh, as, as we are training our new agents. But visa and passport fraud is often related to other things. So we've got uh, cases where we're looking at uh, large financial fraud um, investigations where a falsified passport is the uh, identity document to open the bank accounts. We're looking at human smuggling and of course terrorism and other things like that. So uh, investigations is one of those areas uh, that I've been working on developing my craft and trying to learn as much as I can from some of the more experienced people in the office right now because one thing I, I finally realized is I don't know what I don't know. You know, having the ability to uh, talk to some of the people who are general service, GS employees who have stayed in the investigations realm deeply in it. Um, whereas I, as foreign service, have bounced around the world doing a lot of other things. Um, it's been incredibly uh, edifying to me to, to have some of these conversations. And as I, my agents come to me with questions in my unit, my ability to say, you know what, I'm not 100% sure, but I know someone who is and learn myself that same way. Third, I think learning about learning is one of the things. Um, so one of the things that I've always been interested in um, is uh, teaching at some point in retirement, especially um, a way to keep my mind engaged as I age and as a way to, um, you know, engage with, uh, keep socially engaged, mentally engaged, et cetera. Um, my wife is actually, has her doctorate in educational leadership and change and going through uh, the process with her of, of, you know, doing her dissertation and things like that certainly piqued a uh, desire for learning in me. I had the opportunity to get a master's degree at the National Defense Intelligence College, um, which was a great year because um, I learned a lot about a topic that I had surface knowledge of, but not a whole lot of deep knowledge. And because it is a military school, uh, National Defense, um, it's now the National Intelligence University, but there was a very different take on what the material that we were looking at than I was used to. So that was great. Um, but with my goal of someday teaching myself, I actually, um, over coffee with a friend, uh, was talking about teaching opportunities because I knew that he was teaching at George Mason University. And, uh, you know, I was just trying to figure out how did you get into this, et cetera. And that ended up leading to an opportunity for me to audit his class in the fall and fill in uh, a little bit when he had to travel. And then for the spring, he said, hey, I'm going to have to travel quite a bit. Why don't we co-teach this? And, <clears throat> you know, uh, we can do this together. Um, so that then was a fantastic opportunity uh, for me in the spring. But one of the things that, again, I had to learn was I don't know what I don't know. And I've got to teach it now. So as I was preparing for those weeks where, you know, I was going to be primary or where I'm updating the slide deck, um, just the joy of uh, running down rabbit holes, um, trying to, you know, do the research, 
um, you know, learn myself uh, different ways to present these things uh, was a lot of, was a lot of fun. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take, thank you for that. I, I, I'm going to take a lame attempt at summarizing what I heard, see if I got it right. I asked for three buckets and the first thing you did is really interesting because you were taking templates. I'm going to call them templates. Mm-hmm. Um, emergency management process and protocols from a lot of different sources. And you had to do that because at, at some point they were asking you to distill down for, yes. right? And, 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 and help co-create, collaborate on a process for you folks. So, so that idea of taking what is already best in class or best in process from a number of different points of view and then making it your own, that, that, that was a, a phenomenal and seminal experience for you. It was, and, and in fact, it's why I went back. Um, so I did this from 2003 to 2005, and then you know was back out in the field on kind of the receiving end of the headquarters guidance right. Right. that I had created. Um, yeah, so, so and, and most people don't realize that, you know, they'll accept a template and they'll own that template for the rest of their lives. They'll get their three-letter, you know, CPP or whatever they need to do and they conform to whatever that standard is. But really the way the great conversation over time develops and matures is through that iterative process of making it better and better and better. Right. And, and then when I came back to the office, I was asked to come back in uh, 2000 and let me think here, 2016 to 2018. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things we did was we created a software platform for our embassies and consulates to develop their emergency action plans. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you say, a lot of people are simply given the template and they accept the template. What we had found too often was that they had, especially in, for instance, the checklists, what do you do if um, you receive a bomb threat, the fire alarm goes off, et cetera. What we had found was that way too often, people were just looking at the the sample checklists that we had provided and went, Okay, and just accepted them. Um, whereas the guidance specifically told them that they needed to go through and, um, you know, evaluate these checklists, delete stuff that doesn't apply, add stuff that does apply, roles, um, add roles, take roles out. Because again, when we're trying to do this from a headquarters perspective, we're trying to do this for um, anywhere from let's call it a. 10 person small consulate somewhere to a thousand person embassy somewhere else. And we're trying to give guidance that fits all of that. Yes. And it doesn't work. So one of the things that I came up with and that I was pushing when I was back, in addition to, you know, helping to oversee the development of the new software and updating a lot of the policy was this concept of, you need your emergency action plans to be viable, accurate, and usable. Because one of the other problems that we were having is that on the usable side, people were printing out the entire emergency action plan, which in some cases was between 700 and 1,000 pages. Some of that's due to some printing flaws in the software, but 700 to 1,000 pages weren't bothering to put index tabs and anything else like that. And we're sitting there going, I can't find anything in here. That's true, you know, but that's not how it was designed. 
It was designed for you to be able to say, here is your bomb plan. And we also had designed a feature that said, you know, what do you need to know? Okay, I am a consular officer. I need to know what my role is in various different emergencies. And you could take, extract information out of the emergency action plan and put it into a little binder just for you. But unfortunately, again, that is something that wasn't well advertised, wasn't well used. So coming up with this concept of viable, accurate, and usable, and that's something that, you know, even now that I'm out of the office, I'm still trying to push with the leadership of that office. And hopefully I'll be able to get into some things where I'm able to push that um, again from the outside with, in some other areas. Um, but like I said, the plan that you have for your 10 person embassy isn't going to work for your thousand person embassy. But taking off from that, that was your first tranche, if you will. Your second yep. one was also fascinating. And uh, this is when you're in the investigations uh, side of the business. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about how there's a portal to many different um, uh, criminal activity that comes from visa passport fraud. That's kind of that, a, a, an indicator of a lot of different uh, activity. Uh, but what came out of that for me was your ability to see that at the end of the day, you don't have to know everything. It's who do you know that does know everything? So the orchestration of your subject matter expertise in that office, because you don't, you finally realized you only know what you don't know. Uh, right. But then you had to orchestrate where that knowledge was. That's a fundamental leadership trait, being able to uh, orchestrate subject matter expertise, not necessarily needing to be the expert in everything. Right. And, you know, and again, that was kind of a, a shift for me as well, because on the emergency planning side, I was seen as the expert. And I had, you know, my ability to go through a lot of different areas and, you know, learn a lot for myself. But in investigations, I'm clearly not um, the expert. And, you know, I, I've got some experience with it and I've got kind of a mental bent for it, mm -hmm. uh, which I think comes back to the third bucket, which is the learning about learning. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, if, if you've got somebody who claims to be the expert on everything, um, you know, you need to watch out because you need to, you know, check their sources on a lot of things. <laughs> Well, that third area you're talking about, too, this is a pivotal point in everyone's uh, uh, development. This idea that probably the best way to learn is to teach. Yeah. Right? And, and, uh, and the classroom is actually uh, what many students don't realize is the best teachers are learners at the same time. They use right. the classroom to help learn, right? So I, I, I think, you, you know, your approach on that showed that as well. I love your scorecard for a great emergency action plan too, especially your third one, viable, accurate, and finally, it has to be consumed. It has to be used. Right. That, that was uh, really telling. Um, what, a, what a great conversation. Let me ask you, um, what, what pieces of the, one of those or more of those three areas, so th those three buckets, what are some reading materials that you turn on to your peers? Anything that you're reading or 
anything you'd recommend uh, to learn more about emergency planning? So for emergency planning, um, I would highly recommend things like uh, the courses at the Emergency Management Institute from FEMA. Uh, they've got the independent study series. One of the things that I started with was the professional development certificate series. Um, it's six core courses that help you understand things like incident command system, national incident management system, um, how all of these things work together. Um, Excellent. So that, that one is, uh, you know, really, really useful. Um, also, again, uh, International Association of Emergency Managers is a uh, great one uh, for particularly for those folks that are working in global industries because they've got members from all over the world that you can, you know, reach out to and consult with and learn from, et cetera. So that's not really reading, but then on their website, they do have, you know, a number of things uh, on their website, plus a monthly newsletter um, that talks about, you know, evolving topics in international emergency management, et cetera. Um, so those would be kind of the two things on, Appreciate uh, on that. And then since the, uh, this is a membership driven community, it's a round table, no one's at the head of it. Who would you recommend uh, that you would like to listen to or we all should learn from in the next great conversation? So I know Ron Holloway has been uh, recently uh, transferred into a new position uh, that is going to let him really focus on the leadership development and learning development uh, for diplomatic security. Um, he's got some really great uh, things going in that direction and some uh, really innovative uh, processes that he is aware of that he might not be in charge of necessarily, but aware of. And it's, it's really interesting to hear him talk about how that's working. Um, so Ron would definitely be one. Fantastic. Uh, we know Ron quite well. He participated in the last physical great uh, conversation in Palm Beach. So thank you. And we'll, uh, we'll get a hold of him and get an update on his new position. Yeah, no, that'd be great. This has been a great conversation with Christopher Stitt. It was, it was, it was painless too, right, Christopher? Most painless. Yes, absolutely. I think I stumbled a couple of times as I went into vapor lock in my head with too many pathways at once, but uh, no, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a great conversation with Christopher Stitt, and I'm sure we'll be touching base in the future. Thank you again. Thanks.